pray. Father, you have brought us once again into this house made up of living stones, your people, precious cornerstone are you, O Lord Jesus. We stand upon you. The apostles and the prophets stand upon you. And we look to you for every good thing and every necessary thing. And we know, Lord, that your word is sufficient to provide it all for us. And so we ask you, Father, to give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to receive what the Spirit says to the people who are gathered, to the people who are listening online. Father, I, I believe that the reason you want your pastors to preach these things is so that some will repent and believe. And so I ask that you would do that today. Lord, only you can do it. It's not merely a decision. It is a divine work of grace. And so, Father, would you come and do a divine work of grace in the hearts of some and in all of us that we would come away loving Jesus more, being more in awe of his goodness and his mercy. And may it be mixed with the appropriate fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And Lord, we need your grace for all of these things. And so we ask for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. One of the many benefits of living in the 21st century is the miracle of modern medical science. Before the discovery of antibiotics, for example, infant blindness was a huge problem in the world. Today, however, most newborns are routinely administered to, with uh, antibiotic eye drops that keep them from experiencing blindness. For older men and women, blindness has a number of possible origins. For example, it's relatively common for older people, like myself, although I haven't experienced this, I have close friends and family who have, they develop cataracts. Cataracts uh, occur when the lens of the eye becomes clouded. And when this happens, the light that should normally come through the pupil is blurred. And one's vision becomes muddled and dim. People who have cataracts say it's like looking through a dirty windshield of a car. But in our day, cataracts can usually be removed by a relatively simple surgical procedure that can restore one's sight. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and if you have ever read your Bible, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 2, but I just want to state the obvious that throughout the Bible we, we see stories of blindness, and we're not going to look at one of those today. But in the Bible, there is blindness repeatedly mentioned throughout both Testaments. And usually, when the word blindness is used, it speaks of the same unfortunate physical condition that medical science attempts to, um, to prevent and to cure. On the other hand, however, sometimes the term blindness is used as a metaphor for spiritual blindness, this spiritual problem that keeps people from seeing their own sin, and it keeps them from seeing the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, spiritual blindness. For example, Paul, the apostle, wrote in his second letter to the church of Corinth, he warned them with these words, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Spiritual blindness. And this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Romans, we find Paul addressing such spiritual blindness. He's concerned about it. Among the Jewish people, his Jewish brethren... 
Like all sin in the heart of man, people are spiritually blind by birth and blind by choice. What's worse, we tend to be blind to our blindness. We're blind and we think we can see. In fact, we're convinced that we can see. We think we can see just fine. We think we understand everything that we need to understand. And we believe our own understanding of what it means to have a relationship with God and that our understanding is sound and trustworthy and clear when, in point of fact, it is anything but. Just talk to anyone on the street about their relationship with God and you'll get all manner of skewed ideas about what it means to have a relationship with God. And so the God of this world has inflicted mankind with what could be described as spiritual cataracts that make it impossible for them to see clearly the things that would otherwise lead them to salvation. Paul, however, because of his great love for his Jewish brethren, is determined to perform the delicate surgery necessary to give them spiritual sight so that they will see their own sin and that they will apprehend the glory of the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we witnessed together in our text for this morning in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. So if you do have your Bible, would you stand with me and let's read this text together. Romans 2, 17 through 29. I can't promise we'll get through the whole thing today, but I'm sure going to give it a, a, a valiant effort. And here's what we read. Romans 2, 17 through 29. Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourselves are guides to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. The text before us this morning, Paul points to three causes of spiritual blindness. Probably not the only, but this, these are the three that he mentions in this text this morning. Three causes of spiritual blindness that prevents his Jewish brethren from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Paul desperately wants them to seek it. He wants them to be saved by it. 
He wants them to discover the righteousness of Christ that has the power to justify them, not by works, but by faith alone. Paul is so concerned for their salvation that he will declare later in this this same letter, in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, he writes this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What he's writing here is not anti-Semitism. To the contrary, this is coming out of a deep love for the Jewish people, of whom Paul was one. Paul knows, however, that his death, though he would be willing to die for his Jewish brethren, he knows his death would be insufficient for their salvation. What they really need is to embrace the fact that despite all their spiritual privileges and advantages, they are sinners all and are deserving of God's judgment. Just the same as any Gentile. And that was the problem. They were constantly condemning the Gentiles. And Paul wants them to see that they are no better off. Only then will the scales fall from their eyes so they can see the glory of Jesus, their true Messiah and Savior. And we know that this is what Paul is attempting to achieve here, that he's attempting to show them and convince them that they are no better off before the courtroom of God than any Gentile. If they hope that by their works and by their Jewishness, they will be acquitted, that they will be justified, declared righteous at the bar of God, they are sadly mistaken, frighteningly mistaken. He wants them to know that they are in serious, serious trouble. And it's shocking to them. It's really hard for them to believe this. And yet Paul says things like this. Chapter 2, verse 3, speaking to the Jews. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I can't even communicate with words how shocking and offensive that would be to a Jew. But he goes on, chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Gentile, are under sin. And then famously, chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, Paul says, For there is no distinction, and I take that to mean there's no distinction in the eyes of God between Jew and Gentile. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so you see, because Paul loves his Jewish brethren, he's doing the difficult and frankly dangerous work of exposing their blindness to their sin. You want to know why the leaders of the synagogues and the Sanhedrin repeatedly tried to kill him is because he was saying things like this. Your Jewishness will not be accounted as righteousness in the eyes of God. And so because Paul loves his Jewish brethren, he's doing this difficult work, exposing their blindness to sin, and showing them that the wrath of God is being revealed not only upon pagan Gentiles, but upon all who are sinners. That means everyone, including God's chosen people, Israel. But 
What is the cause of such spiritual blindness? Where does it come from? Um, why is it so difficult for them to accept the fact that God is not going to welcome them into heaven simply because they are Jews? Why is it so hard for them to grasp the fear of the Lord because of his impending and eternal judgment which they will face? Why are they so blind to the revelation of God's impending judgment and the declaration of his cure in Christ? Well, first of all, the first source of blindness is this. They are blinded by heavenly privileges. The Jews are blinded by their heavenly privileges. We see this in verses 17 through 21. Paul mentions several uh, or seven privileges and practices that tended to blind the Jews to their need. In fact, they would say, they would fully believe that because of these privileges and because of these practices, that they were justified in the eyes of God. So what are these privileges? Well, privilege number one was related to their name, their own name. Paul says, verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a Jew, that is, if you consider yourself one of God's chosen people, a Jew, you probably already know from your study in the Word of God that originally they weren't called Jews, they were called Hebrews based on their language. And you remember that when they entered into the promised land, God gave portions of that land, divided up all of the portions of the land among the 12 tribes of Israel. Every tribe got at least one parcel of land. But after the death of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided. In fact, they were not only divided, but they were at war with one another almost constantly. There was a northern kingdom made up of ten tribes, and there was a southern kingdom made up of two tribes. And the southern kingdom made up of two tribes was called the kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom was called Judah, after the son of Jacob, who was born and given that name. Judah was the tribe from which the kings were to descend in Israel, it is the place where God's visible presence, the Shekinah glory of God, appeared to his people, first in the tabernacle and then in Solomon's temple. Judah was the place where the priests represented men before God and where they represented God before men. It was the place where the sacrifices and offerings were prescribed by the law of God. It was the designated location for the three major feasts. Every male Israelite was required to attend all three of these major feasts. And there were more, but there were three that were required. And all of it was in the city of Jerusalem, in and around the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom of Judah. Most importantly... Judah would be the place and Jerusalem would be the place from which Messiah, they hoped and they prayed, would one day come and reign. Even modern Israelites are proud of the name Jew. They love to be called Jew. The name itself comes from the root that means praise. If, if we glance briefly at verse 29, just look at the end of this section we're in today, verse 29, we discover there's a play on words here that's not evident in the English. But Paul writes in verse 29, but a Jew, again, the word Jew comes from the root that means praise, but a Jew is one outwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, but not a matter of the heart, excuse me, is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and then he says, his praise is not from man, but from God. You see what he's implying here? You love to be called a Jew. As far as you are concerned, you are praised by God. 
as his beloved people. However, if there is any praise for you in the end, the praise of men will be of no account. The only thing that you should be concerned about is the praise of God, which you will not have apart from your Messiah, Jesus. It's as if Paul is saying, you love being called a Jew because God says you are praised. But if you do not repent from the heart and believe in his crucified, risen son, you will be judged and condemned by God. Jews tend to be blinded by their own name. Jew. Second, and briefly, all of these, the rest of these will be very brief. Second, they, according to verse 17, relied upon the law. This is a great privilege for them. That is, they trusted in the law of God given by Moses. And no other nation got the law from God. Nobody else had it. They were privileged to be the recipients of God's law. And nothing was more important to the Jews than God's law. In fact, the word law is used ten times just in this section of Scripture that we're dealing with today. This is a really big deal for the Jews. Ten times in this passage it's mentioned. Third, they boasted in God. They boasted in God. The word boast here means exactly what you would think it means. It means to brag. They were proud of their unique covenant relationship with God. They were the only ones who had it. Fourth, verse 18, they know God's will. How do they know the will of God? Well, they know the will of God through the law of God. His written word. Fifthly, they, they approve what is excellent, Paul says. The word for excellent here means essential or valuable. In other words, they were able, by the word of God, to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is good and better and best. The word of God gave them discernment, exactly as the author of Proverbs, the authors of Proverbs promised them. Turn to the word of God, and you will find wisdom for life. They loved being the people, the only people who had the word of God. Sixth, they were instructed by the law. They not only possessed the law, but they were instructed by the law. Even from the earliest years of a Jewish boy, he was taught the law of God. He was sent to synagogue school. Seventh, Paul says, verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, you see now why Jesus refers to the Pharisees as the blind leading the blind. They were blind to their own sin. They were blind to their own unrighteousness, their own condemnation. And so Paul says, and if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, and, and the, the, the statement here is, is looking for a positive a response. In other words, if... Uh, if you consider yourself a guide to the blind, and you do, a light to those in the darkness, and yes, that's exactly what you consider yourself, then there are other things that are true. The nation of Israel, Isaiah 42, 6, we are told they were to be a light to the nations. By the way, everything that's mentioned here, Paul has no disagreement with. He doesn't say any of this is untrue. It's all true. It's all true. They were to be teachers of the law. They were to be a light to the, to the nations. They were taught to read and write so they could read God's law. And by the way, education in America, early America, was all about teaching children to read and write so they could understand the Word of God. It's the same thing. They consider themselves guides to the blind, but quite frankly, they, they didn't care about any other nation receiving this light. Witness the story of Jonah. 
I mean, they were content to let the people of the Gentiles, the various nations of the Gentiles, just face the judgment of God. And God told Jonah, go to Nineveh. It's like saying, you might think of it this way, if Jonah's in Dallas and God says, go to New York, he immediately books a flight to San Diego. By the way, did you hear, did you see the story this week of a man who was swallowed by a whale and survived just this past week? Very interesting. But we're not going to go there. Okay. <laughs> they were content just to let the other nations be ignorant. On the other hand, they were devoted to the education of their own people in the law of God. Paul says, verse 20, they gave instruction to the uneducated and children, the foolish, and the children who needed to learn the basics of God's instructions for life. In fact, the word for being instructed, this is interesting, you, you wouldn't see this in, in uh, the English, but the word for being instructed is katakeo, from which we get the word, anybody guess? Catechism, that's right. Catechism. And those of you who are part of CC, right? Is that right? Uh, yes, classical conversations. It's very catechetical. It's this oral repetition of words and, and putting it to song so they would remember them. In fact, uh, last time I was in Israel, we got down to the, to the western wall, and there's a tunnel underneath, uh, not a rough tunnel, but, a, but, but kind of a, a, an architectural tunnel. And in there, they have rabbis who are working with new believers or proselytes or young men, and they're working through the law. There are things that they want them to learn, and as they're going, it was, it was really beautiful to watch because they would sing it. They, I had no idea what they were singing. It was all in Hebrew. But they stood there and they sang and they danced and they rejoiced and the whole time they were learning the law of God. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. That wasn't bad. Paul wasn't saying you shouldn't do that. You should do that. It had a general meaning, this catechesis or catechism, had the general meaning of an oral instruction of any sort, but was especially associated with the teaching by repetition, both at home and in the synagogues. Now, friends, we, I know I've given you a lot of information and all of this stuff about the Jews, and it's very historical, and it's, it's wonderful. But there's a reason why you should pay attention to this. This is so important to us. We need to pay attention to these things because these seven privileges and practices, all of them are ours as well. And the effect of them can be exactly the same. As long as there has been a church, there has been spiritual blindness in the midst of spiritual privilege and practice. Like the Jews in Paul's day. Let me just show you the comparison. We love to identify ourselves as Christians, don't we? Especially when we're together. We love to identify ourselves as Christians. We love Christ. I mean, some of you probably have some kind of bumper sticker in the, on the car. You know, we, we love Jesus. We claim to rely upon or place our trust in the Word of God. Same as them. We love the Word of God. We love the preaching of the Word of God. We love to hear the teaching. We love to read the Word of God. We boast in God, as Paul said in, in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love to boast in God. We know God's will. Because He told us in His Word, the same Word that was given to the Jews. And more besides, because we have the New Testament. Not only that, but we, like them, we approve the things that are excellent, morally excellent. Um, that's why there's such a thing as vid angel, right? We, we don't want to, 
We don't want to watch movies that are, uh, that are less than moral. We approve the things that are excellent. We have been and continue to be instructed by the Word of God. We provide our children with a Christian education. And when we talk to new believers, we instruct them in the basics of biblical wisdom. In fact, we'll probably even use the Proverbs. I mean, it's the natural place to go. And when we speak to unbelievers, we introduce them to the gospel. We serve as guides to the blind. And, we, and we're unashamed about that. Because there is real blindness. If you had a, an unbelieving Jew, you would do the same for them. You would want them to be able to see what they've been blind to. And so we love being guides to the blind. It's appropriate. It's required. And not only that, but we make the astonishing claim that we possess the embodiment of truth for all people. And where do we have that? In the Word of God. In the Bible. Now all I've done is I've taken this text, all the things that Paul says that the Jews affirm, and I've demonstrated all of these things are exactly what we affirm. That's really interesting to me and very frightening to me because this is not happy, slappy blessing from the Lord. This is a grave warning. My dear friend, none of these things, none of these things have ever saved a single sinner from the wrath of God. None of them. It's entirely possible to have been blessed with all of these spiritual privileges and practices as part of the very fabric of our lives and yet still remain under the righteous wrath of God. In the end, we will not be judged by our privileges or our professions. As we've already seen, Paul says, on the day of judgment, each person will be judged according to his what? according to his works. That is, we will be judged according to the fruit that is born from our lives. If you are a true child of God by grace, through faith, the evidence will be obvious in how you live, what your priorities are, how you relate to God and his word, God's church, God's rule over your life. All of it will be manifested by how you live, what you say, where you go, what you do. Do you love Jesus from the heart? Do you love him? You know what the first and greatest commandment is? It's not don't drink, don't party. No, no, no. The greatest of the commandments is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Do you love him? Do you love him? Do you seek to bring others into a saving relationship with him? He is our living hope. The fruit of your life will bear witness to the root of your life. The fruit of your life will bear witness, will be the proof, the root of your life. So beware. You too may be blind. You may be sitting in this very room today or down the hall. You may be listening online right now. And you may be blind to your own blindness, though you have been a church member for years, or you have considered yourself spiritual and acceptable in God's sight for years, decades maybe. The fact that you call yourself a Christian may be the very thing that blinds you to your need and Christ's atoning supply. That's why they were blind. That's one of the reasons they were blind. 
to their own needs. So Paul's first concern is that his Jewish brethren may be blinded by their privileges. Second, they may be blinded by hidden hypocrisy. Hidden hypocrisy that looks like righteousness when in reality it is not. Verses 21 through 24, let me read that for you again. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Aren't you bringing these truths to bear on your own heart? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, who have all these privileges and, and practices that were given to you by God. And yet because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme God. Notice from the beginning whom he's speaking to. Do you see who he's speaking to? Look at the first word. You. You. You say, well, not really me, right? Of course not. <laughs> the person next to you. <laughs> it is you. You who abhor idols and all of these things. Oh, my friend, at the end of the day, it matters not whether you have grown up in church. It doesn't matter that you have been a deacon or an elder. Even in this church, it doesn't make you a believer. It doesn't make you a child of God. Paul speaking to you. Paul speaking to us. Paul speaking to me. You remember, do you have any idea how many how many pastors there are in the world who are lost? And historically, how many preachers in churches knew nothing of saving grace? Though they mentioned it often, perhaps from the pulpit. Paul is anxious for you to repent and believe He's calling you to humble yourself and confess your need. Who cares what anyone else may think or say after all of these years of pretending and hypocrisy on your part? Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. It's time for you to open your eyes to see what Paul is warning you that you must see. To the Jews, Paul's question is, do you believe that God will count you as righteous because of your Jewishness? And then he offers a sample list of three sins that, lead, that leading Jewish men have committed. Namely, theft, adultery, and idolatry, or robbing pagan temples. And they would rob pagan temples ostensibly to destroy them and get them out of the land, but then they would, uh, they would, would raise them or they would ransack them to get the uh, precious metals out of them. All three of these are forbidden by God. In his word, in his law. The first two are clearly part of the Ten Commandments, two of the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. These are very clearly stated. I mean, they're, they're among the top ten. The third is mentioned in Deuteronomy 7.25, where Moses says, the carved images of their God, their gods, you shall burn with fire. You don't, you don't extract from them the gold and silver and precious stones for your own benefit. No, 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 no. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves lest you be ensnared by it for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Get rid of them. Destroy them. 
take nothing from them. Paul's not saying that every Jew has done this. He's not saying that everyone has committed, every Jew has committed actual adultery or that he's actually stolen, although it could be argued that indeed all of us have stolen. He's not saying that everyone has ransacked temples and robbed them for their own wealth. Paul's not saying that. He's trying to speak to the Jews about their Jewishness. He's talking to them about the danger of relying on their Jewishness for salvation. And Paul is saying, there's a big problem with that. Because there's been an awful lot of Jews who've committed an awful lot of sins from the very beginning. And here are three. Here are three. And so if you think that your righteous standing before God is by virtue of your Jewishness, you're in serious trouble because... There's a long, verifiable history of Jewish unrighteousness. And what you need is perfect righteousness. And you're not going to get that from being Jewish, being born as a distant son of Abraham. Even among the leaders, you think of the story back in Genesis of Judah, from which the name comes Jew. What story is he most famous for? Wasn't that 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 odd story, that terrible story of of him uh, going into a prostitute and finding out that it was his daughter-in-law? That was Judah, the very progenitor of the entire nation of Israel, at least on the Judah side, the two tribes. To say otherwise, relative to there being no righteousness in being Jewish, to say otherwise is to reveal one's spiritual blindness. And it is hypocrisy because they commit the very sins that they condemn the Gentiles for. You are not good with God if just because you are Jewish. A friend of mine one day was talking to someone and wanted to share the gospel with him, and he said, um, Sir, are you a Christian? And he said, No, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> no disparity from the, this pulpit on Baptists, but, but it's that mindset that I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a, you know, you fill in the blank. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a... This is hypocrisy. In Jesus' ministry, he made the accusation even more pointed and personal when he declared in Matthew 23, we already read some of this this morning, but let me read it to you in this context of, of Paul. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. By the way, scribes and Pharisees, can I just remind you, they, they weren't just Jewish, they were the leaders of the Jews. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he, bec when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much the child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and dill and cumin and, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, Jesus says, first clean the, outside, the inside of the cup and the plate so that the outside may also be clean. You know what he's saying? He's saying the same thing that, argue, that Paul is arguing. 
It's not what's on the outside that matters. It's what's on the inside. In your heart. You may say, but pastor, I've been pretty good. I've been pretty good. Grew up in a Christian home. I'm a pretty good person. Really? Uh, can we just put that to the test? Ray Comfort calls this the good person test. I'm going to modify it a little bit here, but the law of God says you must not steal. So have you ever stolen anything? I mean, be honest. Have you ever stolen anything, taken something that doesn't belong to you? Somebody else owns it. You've taken it. You ever done that? Of course you have. All of us have done that. And what do you call a person who takes things that don't belong to them? A thief. So you're a thief in God's eyes. According to God's law, you're a thief. By the way, so we've been talking about the Jews because Paul's talking about the Jews. Can I just talk about pastors for a second? Again, here is a practical illustration. One year, I, most years, we go out to California to uh, the Shepherds Conference. And one year, uh, they, they used to, in fact, for, for several years, what they would do is they would set up tables and publishers would come in and, and pile books on the tables you know, one kind of book or one specific book. And they went, I mean, there were 4,000 men there. So it took a few tables just for one book. And they said, listen, after the session, go outside and there's these free books for you. And uh, just understand that there are 4,000 of you. We got 4,000 books, not 4,001. We've got 4,000 books. So everybody take one. And I went and I got talking to other people and everything like I always do. And uh, I went over to the table. It was empty. And there were like 10 or 20 of us standing around going, where, where did all the books go? And we went and we asked about it. And, and one of the leaders there said, um, well, we made it clear. And we know how many people registered. And there were that many books. And if, if they're gone, it's because they stole them. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is the Shepherds Conference, right? Right? Not only did they steal them, but, in fact, uh, in, the, in the next hour, they had to get up and say, uh, they, they declared amnesty. Anyone who wants to return a book, there'll be no shame, there'll be no judgment. Just give the books back, pastors. Right? Unbelievable. And the other aspect of this was, there were a number of people who were there who hadn't even paid the fee to be there. And they were taking books. So they were stealing doubly and justifying it. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that hit home. I mean, we talk about the Jews. We go, yeah, well, the Jews. What about us? Have you ever committed adultery? You may say, well, of course not. I've never committed adultery. But Jesus says, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's where it matters. Have you ever lied? Of course you have. Everyone has. And if you're right now, you were saying, no, I've never lied. You're lying. <laughs> Everyone has. There are just some things that you, you would rather lie than... than allowed to be exposed. Of course you've lied. Everyone has. And what do you call a person who lies? A liar. Have you ever committed murder? You, you say, well, obviously not. I'm not in jail. But Jesus says, if a man is sinfully angry with his neighbor, he's already committed murder in his heart. So let's tally up the score so far. You are a liar. You're a lying thief, adulterer at heart, who has committed murder. And that's only four of the Ten Commandments. So if you were to stand before God, and it, assuming that he is a righteous judge, will he say that you are innocent or guilty? 
You see what Paul's doing? He's boxing us in. There's no way out of this. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor. It doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian. You grew up in a, in a homeschool situation or whatever. I'm looking at my clock because something funny is happening on the back wall. Okay. Notice how Paul concludes verse 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That is, they see your hypocrisy. And they are appalled by it. Because you claim to be a Jew. And in our case, you claim to be a Christian. Or you claim to be a pastor. You claim to be a follower of Jesus. You, you claim to be a part of Calvary Bible Church. How many employers, unbelieving employers, have hired believers and the name of Christ was blasphemed by their work? It's a powerful indictment because Paul's condemnation of their hypocrisy here is actually a quotation out of Isaiah 52, which was written hundreds of years previous to Paul writing in the book of Romans. You see, the Jews never did possess their own righteousness. Any claim to being righteous in the eyes of God was blatant hypocrisy. The term hypocrite, by the way, is not used in this text, but it's exactly what Paul's talking about in this section. Israel had become a nation of spiritual hypocrites. And they were absolutely blind to it. So Paul is trying to open their eyes. It's helpful to note here that the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek, hypocritas. You know what it means? It means to wear a mask. It literally comes from the Greek theater, where the, the, the players, the actors, would get up on stage. And because people had to see so far away, it was hard to make out facial features, and so they would wear masks. They would cover their real face and show a false face. They pretend to be something that they are not. And the law of God is supposed to be a spiritual mirror. When you look into it, your failures, your sins are magnified and brought into clear focus. I remember my mom used to have uh, a, a mirror that was concave, right? It was a makeup mirror. And if you get close to it a little bit, you identifying with that, Frank? Frank going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can try it. Look at that. Look at that. Um, but you get up close to it, and it's amazing. You can see every little pore, Right? The word of God is the mirror. You say, what, what is the law of God for? It's not to save you. It is to show you as clearly as possibly can be shown what a sinner you really are. So that you will fly to Christ and be reconciled with God in him. But sinners, you know what sinners do? They tend to shatter the mirror, throw it away in favor of their own evaluation of their own righteousness. Instead of looking into the perfect law that gives liberty, they put on the mask of hypocrisy. Once again, Paul's message is that if you think your Jewishness is proof of your righteousness in the eyes of God, you are fearfully mistaken. They and we have always been sinners. And that's exactly Paul's point. Human beings have always had this problem, this, the problem of spiritual blindness. And in the case of the Jews, they were blinded by their privileges. They were blinded by their secret hypocrisy. Third, and finally, they were blinded by heartless obedience. You might call it legalism. I'm calling it heartless obedience, because the way Paul describes this, and in, in, we've already read this, but 
look at chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. He says this, For circumcision, this is the heartless obedience. Things that you can do and, and do them perfectly. And yet, it has no connection with your soul. For circumcision indeed is of value. Again, here's Paul saying, look, I'm not saying any of these things shouldn't happen. All of them should. Circumcision indeed is of value if, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Uh, be regarded by God, I think. And then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one, what's the next word? Outwardly. No one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the what? The heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. Beloved, I know you've heard me. If you've been at Calvary Bible Church, you've heard me say this. I know Rodney's heard me say this 10,000 times. Sin and righteousness are matters of the heart. God sees your heart. Man sees the outward appearance. It's true. You can fool people. You can fool me. You can fool your wife. You can fool your children and your employer. But God sees your heart. His praise is not from man, but from God. Which I take that to mean the only person person whose evaluation matters in the end is God's. And you will either get praise from God or you will not get praise that's worth anything. What Paul is telling us is that sin and righteousness have always been matters of the heart. Heartless obedience never pleases God. If you have a solid block of rusted iron, and on it there is a label, 24 karat gold, It doesn't make that block of rusted iron gold. And we would be a fool to buy it. It's fake. It's phony. And so it is with those who display outward righteousness, but whose heart is far from God. Have you been baptized? Baptism can't save you from the wrath of God. Never has and never will. Have you been circumcised? Circumcision. Can't save you. Never, never could, never will. Have you become a member of a good church? Praise God for that. Church membership has never saved anyone. It's where you get all the divine privileges for being a Christian. It's here. But being a member of the church is not salvific. Do you believe you are righteous enough to be acceptable to God? Your self-righteousness will never save you. You can only, it can only condemn you on the day of judgment. And that's why from time to time, the pastors and teachers of this church will say things like this. You must repent not only of your sin, but of your righteousness. Your righteousness will never save you. So, my friend, isn't it time to ask the great physician, Jesus, to remove the cataracts from your eyes so you can see your sin clearly and so that you can see the provision of Christ clearly? If you ask him, he will give you spiritual sight If you are honest with him about who you are and and your sin, he will forgive you. And he will declare with the fullness of his authority over heaven and earth 
because of the righteous life and atoning death of Jesus Christ, you are justified in God's sight. This is where Paul is going in Romans. But first he spends an enormous amount of time just trying to help us see why we need the gospel. We need the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for another Sunday when we can come and sit under the ministry of your word. Lord, I pray for those who are hearing my voice right now and they sense the spirit in their hearts convicting them. Father, break their hearts. Cause them to weep before you. Give them the capacity to pour out their hearts before you. To ask you for the salvation that only you can give. Ask them for the righteousness that is only available in Christ. Ask them for the forgiveness and the justification that can only come by grace through faith. Well, Father, may that happen right now, this day, for your glory and for their own eternal joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.